0: I always thought that DO and MD degrees were interchangeable. But according to the osteopathic physician I interviewed today, they are not. So what is so different about osteopaths historically and presently? Find out on today's episode. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs Cycle. Dr. Ian Storch, thanks so much for being on the podcast.
1: Brad, thank you so much for having me tonight.
0: So tell the audience a little bit about yourself, about your training, about what your practice is now.
1: All right, Brad. So I am going to go backwards. I'm a practicing gastroenterologist in New Hyde Park. I am a general gastroenterologist in solo practice. But my training, I started at the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine, which is on Long Island. I did... four four years of internal medicine, three years of internal medicine residency, and one chief resident year at Northwell. It's now Northwell Health in Manhasset. And I then went to University of Miami in Miami, Florida, and the Schiff Schiff Liver Institute for my gastroenterology and hepatology training. And then
0: what about your practice now? Oh, right. Sorry. You said you're a solo practitioner in New Hyde Park.
1: My practice is in New Hyde Park. I do general GI consultation. I see my patients in the hospital. I have a busy office practice doing endoscopies, colonoscopies, pancreas, liver, and anything to do with the GI tract.
0: Excellent. And the reason that we're having you on the podcast actually is not to talk about gastroenterology specifically, but rather to talk about your podcast and what you've learned from your show. We're going to be talking about osteopathy. So tell us about the Star Wars referencing Do or Do Not podcast.
1: Yeah, so our podcast is called Do or Do Not. You know, some people call it Do or Do Not. And basically, the podcast highlights osteopathic physicians. It's for pre medical students, medical students, and anybody interested in learning about osteopathic medicine. We interview doctors who practice osteopathic manipulative techniques, and we interview doctors who are osteopathic neurosurgeons. We kind of run the gambit. I've been doing it for four years with a great group of students, pre-medical and osteopathic students who helped me with the podcast. And I think it's really great. I think it's great too. And I've learned a lot from
0: listening to it. So tell us a little about the history of osteopathic medicine and specifically about its founder, A.T. Still.
1: You know, I think it's interesting when you look at the history of osteopathic medicine to understand that at the time, which was in the 1800s, the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, the medicine was much different than it is now. So we didn't have antibiotics. We didn't have germ theory. We didn't have vaccines. So at that point, there really were opioids, we were doing amputations, and a doctor named A.T. Still, a practitioner named A.T. Still, lived in the Midwest, and became very disheartened with medicine when his family, his wife and his children died of infectious diseases that couldn't be treated by modern medicine. And he came up with a system of medicine which he termed osteopathic medicine, which basically was manual therapies to treat dysfunctions, what he he called somatic dysfunctions, problems with the body that he could treat with his hands. And he focused on philosophies such as mind, body, and spirit. He felt it was important to treat the mind, body, and spirit, the whole person. And he actually attracted a lot of quote unquote m d s at the time who again, medicine was not very advanced at that point. They came to train with him to learn his techniques and I think ultimately that was the beginning of osteopathic of modern osteopathic medicine because when drug therapies and vaccines came, which were during a t still's lifetime a lot of the practitioners who are MDs sort of merged the two techniques into a sort of osteopathic medicine that we know today.
0: And I was saying before the show, I think that when I look at my DO colleagues in my practice, I think, you know, that they're, we're effectively the same, right? There's no difference between the two other than that they learn some osteopathic manipulative medicine, right the o m m during their training, and we don't right? Would you agree that effectively the two schools of thought and the two you know the m d and d o have converged at this point?
1: I think they're similar. you know, obviously, we all practice you know I'm a practicing gastroenterologist for my own practice, as with your colleagues. I don't think there's much different between what I would do and an os- and a i'm sorry a. Allopathic, between, yeah. what I would, between what I would do in an allopathic gastroenterologist, you know, the main differences are in philosophy, which, as we discussed before the interview, are sort of coming together. You know, MDs are definitely not – there's no MD that would argue that mind, body, and spirit are all important and taking care of the whole patient is important. But that philosophy is a cornerstone of osteopathic medicine and always has been. And definitely, I agree with you, in medical school, we do learn, uh, we learn every class that we would need to be a complete physician, plus we are required to do osteopathic manipulative therapy classes in school.
0: And, And something else that we were talking about before the show is how the progressiveness of the osteopathic schools, for instance, you know, one thing I learned from listening to your podcast is osteopathic schools admitted women. Prior to allopathic schools admitting women. And so that's something that was progressive. What are some other ways in which the osteopathic schools have been more progressive?
1: I think it's amazing that, you know, again, these are things that I didn't learn in medical school, but through the podcast, I've learned there are whole, there's a book written on women in osteopathic medicine, really talking about specifically the history of women in medicine and going on to discuss how A.T. Still had women in his first medical class, which was really almost unheard of in the 1800s at that time, and has progressed through the history of osteopathic medicine, just understanding that women are great physicians, which of course we know. There's also a book that was published by a woman named uh, Darnita Anderson called Blacks and Osteopathic Medicine, which again goes through the history of African-Americans and the practice of medicine and specifically osteopathic medicine. Her father, who's a prominent osteopathic leader, was he marched with Martin Luther King. Like He's, he's amazing. We, we were able to interview him. He's a 90-year-old surgeon who's still teaching at one of the osteopathic medical schools. And listening to these stories is just spectacular.
0: The training is not identical, right? Aside from OMM, there's actually something else that I learned from your show. <clears throat> and that's that osteopathic students examine each other, whereas allopathic students don't. The governing bodies of allopathic versus osteopathic. Allopathic decided, you know what? You have a right to privacy and you know, we're not gonna let other students examine you because you have a right to your own, you know, let say bodily autonomy, you have, you have a right to, to your own privacy and not to be examined by one of your colleagues. So we're gonna hire actors and they're gonna be paid and that's who you're gonna be practicing examining on. Whereas osteopathy, what you're told is, listen, this is something that's important to your education And this is something that you're going to, you're going to be making a lot of sacrifices for your education, for your patients. And so one of the sacrifices you're going to make is you're actually going to be examined by your colleagues. You're going to examine them and they're going to examine you. And that's just part of the process. So I thought that like difference was
1: interesting. I think it's interesting also. And again, I only know what I did in my medical school, which again, we're going back a number of years already, but we had OMM classes, osteopathic manipulative classes where you would have a partner who is one of your one of the students in the class, and you would learn techniques, examine them, and practice therapy with your partners, with your lab group. So you mentioned the OMM. What is OMM? So OMM is osteopathic manipulative medicine. Osteopathic medicine, again, is sort of this complete medical training. You know, our training is we take all of the pharmacology, we take all of the medical classes, the anatomy and physiology, but there's this extra class called OMM. So OMM, and there are a few different terms, is osteopathic principles and practice, which is OPP. There's osteopathic manipulative therapy, which is OMT, and there's osteopathic manipulative medicine. Now, you may get a specialist that can actually tweak those terms. To me, they're sort of very same they're name very for- fluid, yeah. They're very fluid. Those techniques range, interestingly, from soft tissue techniques, which is sort of the easiest way I could explain it would be sort of a massage type therapy to high velocity thrust techniques, which are techniques that would be similar to what a chiropractor would do and then go into sort of range of motion and techniques that again would be similar to maybe what a physical therapist would do. You know, it's hard for me to just explain all these things on the po- on this podcast, but you know, the techniques are very interesting and in the podcast again we've interviewed we haven't had an ENT yet, we're working on that, but we've had you know a lot of different specialties of medicine, but we've definitely tried to focus on the manipulative practitioners to try to explain what that is. We, there is a great episode with a student named Jeremy Pullman who actually wants to be a gastroenterologist. He's now, uh, I'm proud to be mentoring him, He's a great guy. He wrote a book as a medical student sort of outlining all of the osteopathic techniques and, you know, those can be viewed online for anybody interested. I would look into Jeremy Pullman and his book to really get an idea of what the techniques are. But, you know, the interesting thing about the techniques and the different practitioners that we've interviewed is that on one side, you know, there are people, there are doctors that only do manipulative therapy, which as we discussed offline, you know, I think, not to say anything bad about other practitioners that do manual therapy, but the nice thing about it.
0: Oh, go ahead. Just throw someone under the bus. The listeners appreciate that. It makes for good listening. It gets helps the ratings.
1: My uncle's a chiropractor. I love him. I think he has a great practice. But I think one of the pluses to going to an osteopathic doctor who does manipulation is that they've been trained as complete physician.
0: Ooh, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. Does that mean that those who have not been trained in OMM are not complete physicians?
1: No, 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 no. no. I'm sorry. You're missing my point. Okay. So you know, complete physicians as opposed to a practitioner who is only trained in manipulative therapy. Ah, got
0: therapy. it. Okay, I see. What yeah, so, right. okay. so again, I
1: apologize <laughs> if I misspoke. But yeah, I'm saying, you know, if you see a practitioner that, you know, I would say an MD is a complete physician, they're trained in all of these things. If you're looking for a doctor to do manual therapy and... Again, there are many Yeah, not to the
0: exclusion of modern medicine, right? Not to the exclusion of surgery and pharmacotherapy and imaging and- Correct.
1: So an osteopath is trained in all those things, plus the manipulative therapy. On the other side, we have doctors such as myself, who I'm a gastroenterologist. I don't practice any manual therapy. I have an appreciation for it. I don't practice it. And then the interesting doctors are the ones that are really interesting to me are the ones in the middle- we had a great interview with a surgeon who's at NYU Long Island, which used to be called Winthrop. His name is Balthazar. It's, a... it's interesting. That's where I have privileges. Balthazar, he actually reached out to us. He's a trauma surgeon. He practices at NYU. He's very interested in evidence for manipulative therapy. He's actively doing research on manipulative therapy. And specifically, and again, remember, if, you're, if you get shot, he's not going to rub your back, right? <laughs> he's taking you to the operating room to fix you. But when you get out of the operating room, he feels that you know, osteopathic techniques can be used to decrease pain, to decrease narcotic requirement to increase lymphatic drainage, you know, maybe time on a ventilator. These are all things that clearly need more evidence and he's looking into it. So, you know, I really think those doctors are super interesting, the ones that are that are using manipulative therapy as an adjunct to sort of standard therapy.
0: That's interesting is he an MD or a DO because now that he's the DO. AC well because the ACGME has now governs what we're traditionally MD and DO programs. Which were separate, but they've now they're now all under the ACGME. And so you can, you know, go into be trained as an MD and yet go into a program that does teach OMMM. OMM. So for all the physicians out there who actually find this interesting, it doesn't mean that because you didn't go to a a DO school, the door is now closed.
1: Yeah, so Balthazar says that in his interview, you know, we talk about that. He said that you know a lot of his MD colleagues, after they see you know what he can do with these techniques, are very interested in learning them. So a lot of his you know he has a lot of MD surgical residents that are training with him, and he's teaching them OMM. So yeah, there's no secret handshake. We want everybody to learn.
0: So you're a gastroenterologist, and you know patients come in with a lot of visceral complaints, and sometimes they're hard to figure out sometimes we can sometimes we can't as you know one of my first guests said the colon is the window into the soul um so what about visceral omm how come you have chosen not to integrate that into your practice
1: yeah so i think you know the first thing that's interesting about osteopathic school is that we you know we really and and mds learn this also but you know, as far as referred pains and you know, patients—if patient has a an ulcer—every student, whether they're an MD or DO, know that a penetrating ulcer causes stomach pain that goes to the back. Like we all know this, yeah. right? We get this in med school. Some it's of us like may a, have forgotten it, but it's been yeah, a lot. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but you know it. You know <laughs> I knew it. it. Yeah, so we all know this. But this is kind of an osteopathic tenant. Why does it go to the back? because there there are nerves that synapse in the spine and that produces back pain. So, you know, I think as a DO, like maybe we're a little more in tune to some of those referred pains. I think that's interesting. But you know, to answer your question, why don't I do manipulation? Because, you know, again, when I was in medical school, I'm sort of an all in kind of guy. I spent a lot of time studying manipulation, but ultimately, the way my practice went, you know, I trained at an MD institution. I learned standard gastroenterology, and I'm super busy, again, doing colonoscopies and endoscopies in my office. And again, it's just not something that I have the time or expertise for in my own practice.
0: Got it. The same reason that I'm an otolaryngologist and yet I don't do neck dissections is because, yes, I was trained in them, but when I get into practice, I wasn't doing enough of them to keep my chops. So if someone needs it, I'll send it to someone
1: else. I think that's exactly right. Okay.
0: So what are some other things that you've learned about osteopathy from the podcast that either you didn't know from your training or knew from your training? And, you know, like me being reminded now that You know, stomach pain referring to the back as an ulcer
1: that you may have forgotten. I think one of the super interesting things is there's a, a, there's a, um, all right, I'm going to, you'll edit that out. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a a professor at one of the osteopathic schools whose name is Norman Gebets, and he wrote a book called The DOs, which I read before I decided to go to osteopathic school. And then I kind of forgot about it. But actually, when I interviewed Balthazar, he said that he had read it. And that's kind of what made him want to go to osteopathic school. So I dusted it off the shelf. I did still have my copy. I reread it. And then I called Norman Gevitz, who wrote the book, to talk to him about it. And... He his history of osteopathic medicine is great. You know, again, it's really one of those things that I think should make all DOs proud, as you stated that we do have our own history. But one of the points that he brings out at the end, and bringing your ideas full circle, is that in recent years, osteopathic medicine and allopathic medicine or MD medicine has really come together. Or I would argue you know, allopathic medicine has maybe shifted a little bit and accepted some of the osteopathic tenets, which are, no one would argue, like mind, body, spirit, and you have to treat the patient as a whole instead of as a combination of their parts, even if you're an ENT or a gastroenterologist. A yeah, combination um, of three
0: parts. We were working on that.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, so, you know, but one of the points that he brings up at the end of the book is especially As residencies merge and everything comes together, I think DOs need to be proud of who they are and really think about actively what makes osteopathic medicine special or it will fade away.
0: It it sounds like the same reason my mom wanted me to marry a Jewish woman. (laughs) It's like assimilation, assimilation is going to, you know, more likely to lead to extinction here. You know, it's like they're accepted as equals, which you are, and that might end up being your undoing is eventually it all just merges into one. And actually, we're seeing that with the ACGME, right? The ACGME now there's no, you know, it's all under
1: one umbrella. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's an interesting observation and an interesting point. The I think medical students, you know, when I talk to educators and medical students, obviously they have more, it's much more important to them. I've gone through my training. I actually did MD training for my internal medicine and gastroenterology fellowship, primarily because they're just warranted. Any GI programs that were the equivalent of University of Miami where I ended up. So I wanted to be the best gastroenterologist that I could. That was an MD program. That's what I did. Some people argue that, or I've heard the argument that it's great that the residencies came together because everyone should have equal opportunities to all of these programs. And as we just discussed, some people argue that there's a loss. There used to be osteopathic programs in things like orthopedics, in every specialty in family medicine that specifically had manipulation associated with it. There are still programs that have osteopathic recognition, which means that they really have a little DO or do not star on them maybe that show that they have this extra osteopathic piece. But there are definitely DOs that argue that the loss of the residency programs that are specifically osteopathic was a loss to the profession. And I think no one knows the answer to that, or we won't know the answer to that for until 10 years from now when everything kind of pans out. So Brad, I know that you're the host and I'm on your show, but I'm going to kind of flip it around a little bit if you don't mind.
0: You are the host of your own show, so this is comfortable territory for you.
1: I am. Yeah, so can you tell me now? You you're in a big ENT practice, right? No,
0: no, I'm in the big ENT practice. That's how Excuse I like me, to describe you're it, in yeah. the
1: big ENT practice. So you're in the big ENT practice, and I looked at your website, and you have quite a number of DOs in your practice. We do, right? Yeah. So can you tell me in your practice, and this is kind of what we are trying to talk about on the podcast, what you understand as the difference? between a DOENT and an MDENT and tell me what you think specifically when maybe you have a candidate coming in interviewing for your practice and they're DO
0: There's no difference fundamentally between the two because they've completed a residency program, they've done a number of you know office hours and surgeries and they've passed boards like they're they're equivalent. I like I've a colleague near me who I send all my complicated ear surgeries to. And he's a DO. I have another colleague. He's a good friend of mine. I think he's going to be on your show. He's on our board. Like we have a board of physicians that run our practice. Seven out of 250 run the practice. And one of them is a, is a DO. You know, we don't think they're equivalent. And that's my perspective on all this is there's no difference between any of us. I think we tend to see fewer DOs in academic practices rather than private practice because I think their training programs tend to be more community-based rather than academic-based. And so if you're being trained by community physicians, you're more likely to be a community physician. If you're trained by academic physicians, I think you're more likely to feed into academic programs. And I think that's the only difference between the two. And again, with the merging of the ACGME, who knows if that's going to continue that way or we're, we'll just be even more equivalent than we are now. So the short answer is I see zero difference. Zero difference. What about the osteopathic oath? We talked a couple episodes ago about the Hippocratic Oath and how the Hippocratic Oath that we take is not even close to the real Hippocratic Oath that refers to like the Greek deities of healing and you're not allowed to cut for stone, right? All these things that, that we tell ourselves is the... Hi- so what's the osteopathic oath?
1: If this is a test, I'm going to fail. I definitely can't (laughs) recite the osteopathic oath.
0: But like, you know, the first do no harm, that's the part of the Hippocratic, which isn't even in it, that, that we all remember. So, you know, are there any parts of the osteopathic oath that you, that stand out?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the whole primum non nocere or do no harm is definitely part of the oath the we're about to we're about to put up our hundredth episode of do or do not and at the beginning of the episode not to ruin it for anybody if this gets posted before but i do recite the osteopathic oath and at the end of it i throw in and this is just another star wars reference for those of you that love star wars this is the way it's a very good oath i think it's very similar to the oath that MDs take when they finish medical school, but it definitely talks about doing no harm, taking care of patients, putting patients first, you know, all of those things. But again, I think that little piece of culture is really what makes osteopathic medicine special. You know, we have, again, our own oath, which is kind of cool. So, in closing,
0: what's one more interesting piece of osteopathic history, maybe, that we haven't covered today right like for instance there's an osteopathic museum out there with osteopathic artifacts right like at stills cane what's something else you want us to know
1: yeah, so I'll tell you. So when I told you at the beginning of the interview, like when I do something, I'm all in. So when I first started looking at osteopathic schools, and I think you alluded to this, there's a school, it was called Kirksville at the time. It's now called A.T. Still University. It's in Kirksville, Missouri. It's the founder school. It was awesome. So I flew out there. I went to Kirksville to interview. I loved the school. Again, I was a bit of a baby and I missed New York and my family. So I ended up in New York, but I loved A.T. Still University. They have a museum there. We actually interviewed the curator. There's a full-time curator of the museum. There are people, there are osteopaths from all over the world that come to the museum to visit they have AT Still's cane there they have his boots there's a the the school is awesome the dean of the school is a woman named Margaret Wilson i highly recommend listening to her episode she's just a great strong woman a great educator and you know i have some students now that are applying to osteopathic school that i'm mentoring that are helping with the podcast most of them are from the northeast and I really try to get, I've been trying to get them to open their mind and apply outside New York and specifically to at least keep in mind A.T. Still University just because it's really cool. All
0: right. Well, fantastic. So the podcast again for the listeners is the D.O. or Do Not podcast with Dr. Ian Storch and Dr. Storch, thank you so much for your time.
1: Brad, thanks again. I really appreciate the time.
0: Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, This is not a doctor-patient relationship, and this is not medical advice, or financial advice, or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.